Africa Rhyme. Africa Zora. Africa Amka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 6145 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisalu Hoko and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, the ICC still holds South Africa liable for not handing over Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir. And Angola and Botswana start a new era in the bilateral cooperation on agriculture, geology and mining. In sports news, South Africa's Bangana Bangana ready for Equatorial Guinea. First up the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. European Union observers have given Guinea's presidential elections a clean bill, despite protests by opposition supporters who accuse President Alpha Conde of rigging the vote to win a second term. The EU observer team says logical pro- logistical problems, including lack of voting materials and the late opening of polling stations, did not mar the overall outcome of Sunday's ballot in Guinea. Early results announced by radio stations showed Conde with a seizable lead. Opposition leaders have rejected the results and called for the ballot to be reorganized. An autopsy on the supposed remains of Burkina Faso's former president, Thomas Sankara, who was killed in a 1987 coup, showed he was riddled with bullets. The family's lawyers say they are ever still waiting for the results of DNA tests to confirm the body was that of the revolutionary former army captain, but said there's every reason to believe the remains exhumed from a cemetery in the capital, Wagadougou, in May, were his. Two rival drag clans in northern Mali have ended a decades-old feud to halt conflicts between pro-government militias and separatists. The Ifohas and Inghard clans have clashed for decades, but their rivalry took on a new dimension when Tureg separatists led by the Ifohas group seized the country's north in 2012 with support from Islamist fighters. An accord signed by the two clans' leaders pledged to turn the page and consult on issues of shared political and economic interest in the desert region. 
The release of a reporting to the crash of Malaysia Airlines flight MH17 issued by the Dutch Safety Board has been welcomed by the United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. The report states that a missile brought down the plane over eastern Ukraine in July 2014, killing everyone on board. Ban paid tribute to the 298 victims of the air disaster and said from the very beginning the United Nations had supported efforts to find out what happened to the downed airliner. The foreign minister of Ukraine, Pavlov Klimkin, says the next step was to bring those responsible for the disaster to justice. We need to get perpetrators and to bring them to the internationally legal body, fully transparent, of course fully accountable. And the idea about international tribunal we have been working on is exactly such an idea. And finally, the International Organization for Migration says nearly 600,000 people have fled conflict in other disasters across the Mediterranean Sea this year. The UN partner agency estimates at least 3,100 people have lost their lives in the Mediterranean since the beginning of the year. According to the IOM, most migrants reaching Italy are from Eritrea, Nigeria, Somalia and Sudan, while most people arriving in Greece are from Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq and Pakistan. The majority of those seeking refuge are adult males, while there are also significant numbers of women and children, including unaccompanied minors. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zorza. Africa, amuka na unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The International Criminal Court says South Africa will still be held accountable for not handing over Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir, even if it decides to remove its signature from the court. This comes after Obed Babela, Deputy Minister in the South African Presidency, saying that the ruling African National Congress is making preparations to leave. Jack Parrock reports. Senior ANC officials now say the International Criminal Court has lost its direction, that it's trampling over human rights for selfish interests, and that South Africa is working out how to remove its signature from the court's founding document, the Rome Statute. South Africa is locking horns with the court over a situation in which ICC-indicted Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir was not arrested when he visited an AU summit in Johannesburg in June. Fadi al-Abdullah is the ICC spokesman. If a state deposits uh, a notice that they are withdrawing from the ICC Rome statute, this withdrawal doesn't take effect until one year at least after this deposit. But even after the withdrawal becomes effective, still that does not affect any obligations that has been raised before uh, this date. So, again, a withdrawal cannot affect past obligations or ongoing proceedings. The court has long been accused of holding a bias against Africa. Everyone who's ever stood in its docks has been African. Alison Smith is from the NGO No Peace Without Justice. Many African states are 
full, fervent supporters of the International Criminal Court. And as they often say, Senegal was the first uh, country that ratified the Rome Statute. It's really been a, a push also from the African countries to have a good ICC in place. So I don't see uh, a mass withdrawal uh, simply because South Africa decides to withdraw. Tensions are now only likely to be flared further after the ANC has said President al-Bashir can return to South Africa to attend an Africa-China cooperation summit in December. The Assembly of ICC States Parties is meeting at its highest level in The Hague in November. South Africa potentially becoming the first country to remove itself from the court is likely to make that a defining conference for the future of the International Criminal Court. Jack Parrick, Brussels. The authorities in South Sudan's capital, Juba, say 3,000 Ugandan troops have just started to withdraw from South Sudan. The withdrawal, which ends on the 1st of next month, comes nearly two years after the Ugandan troops were sent to South Sudan to provide military support to the country's army in its fight against rebels led by former Vice President Riek Machar. James Shimangula reports. The withdrawal of Ugandan troops from South Sudan was announced by the Yuba government as well as the authorities in Kampala. Speaking from Kampala, General Katumba Wamala, Uganda's chief of defense forces, said. As I speak now, the chief of land forces is in Yuba, working out the details and the modalities of the disengagement and the withdrawal of the troops. As to when we will see the last footprint uh, of the soil of South Sudan, a lot will depend on uh, how good the weather is cooperative and all other factors. If all other factors remain even, then we should be out of uh, South Sudan by the first week of November. This is because of, uh, it's not just a question of running away, it's a matter of organized withdrawal, which means we have to take all the equipment and all the assets and all and everything that went in in an organized fashion, and then be able to hand over the responsibilities to uh, South Sudan and uh, possibly UNAMIS in some of the areas. UNAMIS, that Uganda Defense Force Chief Katumba Wamala is referring to, is the United Nations mission in South Sudan, comprising 12,500 soldiers and policemen stationed in various parts of South Sudan. Disclosing the number of Ugandan troops expected to leave South Sudan, Uganda's Chief of Defense Forces, General Katumba Wamala, had this to say. The numbers, we are talking about uh, 3,000. This is a reinforced brigade. A reinforced brigade means that you have an infantry, you have all the other elements of the military, including armor, artillery, and uh, the logistic parts. That's the strength. Turning to the number of Ugandan soldiers killed in South Sudan since they entered there on December 15, 2013, Uganda's chief of defense forces, Katumba Wamala, said. On the number of injured, and casualties ever since we went in. Uh, we only had one contact ever since we went in, 
and that was in Parek uh, during that uh, December incident and that's when we lost nine soldiers and we have never gone in contact again and so we have not lost any other combatants. While in South Sudan, Ugandan troops played a pivotal role by guarding the presidency and Juba city as well as Juba International Airport. Uganda's chief of defense forces, General Katumba Wamala, alludes to the security of those strategic places. The security and safety of Juba, we have discussed this in detail with the government of South Sudan. We think they'll be able to take over the security of Juba, plus the Tunamis is also in Juba, and possibly they'll be able, since they have an expanded mandate, they'll be able to take the security of Juba. We don't see ourselves being forced to run back, but the IGAD force, I can't tell. I have not seen the IGAD force, since we are not part of the IGAD force. But suppose tomorrow the United Nations says we were given a mandate of 12,600 and we don't have the truth. Can Uganda contribute to the UN force? So we'd be able to contribute to that force. One thing we wouldn't want to be, to be seen, is to be the, the impediment in the implementation of the agreement. That peace agreement was signed in August this year by South Sudan President Salva Kiir and his principal political and military opponent Riek Machar, who now leads a rebel group. The peace agreement is expected to pave the way for the establishment of a government of national unity next month. In that government, Salva Kiir remains president of South Sudan, while rebel leader Riek Machar is to become the country's vice president replacing the current second powerful man, James Waniga. The withdrawal of Ugandan troops from South Sudan has also been confirmed by Uganda Army spokesman Paddy Ankunda, who emphasized briefly that the departure of troops from his country will not leave a military vacuum. The United Nations has sanctioned a total of thousand strong force in addition to the 1,300 policemen, that force should be able to keep security. Also affirming that Ugandan troops are leaving South Sudan is a Ten-Wekateng, spokesman for President Salva Kiir, speaking to me by telephone from Juba, the capital of South Sudan. A Ten-Wekateng said... The last Ugandan troops would be leaving South Sudan. How many Ugandan troops are we talking about? There are not more than 3,000 because they are by brigade. You cannot give more than 3,000 to brigade. What about the security right now? Is it stable? The security is stable in South Sudan, yes. Very, very stable. That was a Tenueka Teng spokesman for President Salva Kiir confirming the departure of Ugandan troops from South Sudan, which he indeed asserts is now stable. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Major international humanitarian organizations in the refugee camp of Dadab, northeastern Kenya, have suspended their operations in the area following the abduction of an aid worker by suspected Al-Shabaab militia. Kenyan security forces have launched a manhunt for the aid worker who was kidnapped near the town of Hagedare in the Dadab refugee camp. Security personnel in Kenya are pursuing the kidnappers believed to be heading towards the Somali-Kenyan border. Mikey Konya reports. According to officials of the major international humanitarian organizations in the Dadaab refugee camp, northeastern Kenya, all operations have been suspended following the abduction of an aid worker working as a teacher with the Windy Trust International. She was kidnapped in near Hagedera town in the Dadaab refugee camp by a suspected Al-Shabaab militia. 
She has been a teacher in one of the secondary schools in the area under the Windy Trust International. The armed militiamen who had concealed the identity took her to on the Somali-Kenyan border. Kenyan security forces are currently pursuing the kidnappers in the area. Her whereabouts are still unknown, including the fate of the driver she was traveling with. But according to Ben Lawrence of Amnesty International, it is not yet clear what happened during the incident. It's not yet clear whether the aid worker who was taken from Wendell Trust was a Kenyan, was an international star, because that will have some impact on understanding really what's going on there. And it's also worth pointing out that al-Shabaab or conservative Islamist elements who want to make a point in Kenya are generally against secular education. And Wendell Trust does a fantastic job of supporting secular education in Dadaab. And those are precisely the avenues of opportunity that al-Shabaab would want to close down. So it does make sense as a legitimate target. But so far, the al-Shabaab militants have not claimed responsibility for the incident. Ben Lawrence again. Al-Shabaab, it's actually a, a loose affiliation of things. In one reading, Al-Shabaab could be a word for any kind of cross-border organized crime because to some extent there will be a relationship to the terrorist group. So it may be that there is a, a group who has conducted this operation and their relationship to Al-Shabaab is not quite clear or uh, Al-Shabaab itself is deciding whether or not it wants to affiliate with them. It's also worth bearing in mind that the Kenyan army is heavily involved on the other side of the border in Somalia. You have elements within the Kenyan state who are also hand in glove with al-Shabaab. The Kenyan media might like to paint it as an open and shut case, a black and white news story, but it probably isn't. For the last few years, the Kenyan government has insisted that refugee camps in northeastern part of the country harbor al-Shabaab militants, and almost all major terrorist attacks on Kenyan soil are planned and facilitated in the refugee camps. The government has continued to push for repatriation of Somali refugees back to their country so that the camps can be closed. Meanwhile, police in Nairobi have arrested eight terror suspects after a tip-off from members of the public. The eight were five foreigners and three Kenyans. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. While much of the focus lately has been on Syrian refugees traveling through Greece, migrants continue to make the deadly Mediterranean Sea crossing between Africa and Italy. As a reminder to lawmakers, a group of activists in Berlin brought their own version of a packed refugee boat to the German capital, as Ira Spitzer tells us. It's an unfamiliar sight in a European capital. 120 people crammed into a refugee boat floating by the country's parliament. Ingo Wirth works for the volunteer organization Sea Watch and is the skipper of this boat. The idea is to give the people of the government uh, and interested people the chance to try how it feels to be on a boat, on an unsafe boat like this, because the reason that the people come on this boat is that there's no legal way to come into Europe. The vessel is an actual refugee boat that Sea-Watch rescued off the Libyan coast three months ago. More than 2,600 people have died trying to cross the Mediterranean this year. The boat was so completely overloaded that we had uh, the clearance between um, the rubber and the water was about 10-15 centimeters. 
The activists are demanding a stronger response from European leaders who have focused on deterring migrants and people smugglers instead of rescue operations or facilitating migration. Of course, even if migrants survive the journey, like Nigerian refugee Nazir Khalid did back in 2011, life in Europe is not easy. There is no dignity here, really. They don't care where you come from, who you are, you are a woman being or alima, they don't care. Khalid was granted refugee status in Italy, then came to Germany to improve his situation. But he remains in limbo, unable to work legally. Still, this country is the most popular destination for migrants because of its relatively friendly asylum policies. Indeed, Germany has been one of the most welcoming countries in Europe since this latest refugee crisis began. But with public opinion here starting to shift, will German lawmakers continue to have that same attitude? Ira Spitzer, Berlin. Angola and Botswana are ready to start a new era in the bilateral cooperation on agriculture, geology and mining, energy and water, trade, environment and diplomacy fields. To end that, to that end, President of Botswana, Seretze Khama, paid his first official visit to Angola to discuss these goals. Our correspondent in Angola, Phil Nelo, reports from Luanda. The president of Botswana, Seretse Kama Yam Kama, has just concluded a 48-hour official visit to Angola at the invitation of his counterpart, Jose Eduardo Santos. One of the highest points on the visiting president agenda was the meeting he held on Tuesday in Luanda with his counterpart to discuss matters of common interest and concerning Southern Africa, including others of international concern. At the sideline of this meeting, official talks were held between ministerial delegations from both countries, with the parties reviewing matters concerning agriculture, geology and mining, energy and water, trade, environment and diplomacy. Angola and Botswana enjoyed diplomatic relations since 1975, which led to the signing of the General Cooperation Agreement in February 2006, and the two countries are members of the Southern African Development Community, SADC. According to the final communique produced at the end of the official talk between the two governments, both sides decided to set up cooperation in the field of geology and mining, agriculture, energy and water, industry, commerce and telecommunications. President Sretse Kamayam Kama also urged the ministers of both countries to identify new areas of cooperation, building on the moment created by the fields already identified by Angolan's president, Jose Eduardo Santos. Botswana president recognized and encouraged the leading role of Angola at the Kimberley process and at the International Conference on the Great Lakes region, but also requested Angola to push for an African agenda as the current non-permanent member of the UN Security Council. I would like Your Excellency to commend you for the critical role that you continue to play in the diamond industry as the current chair of the Kimberley process. Kimberley. Indeed, also your leadership as chair of the International Conference on the Great Lakes region will, I'm sure, bring the people of the DRC a step closer to realizing their hopes and aspirations for a lasting peace. It is also a fitting tribute to the continued resolve of Your Excellency's government and commitment to peace and security that Angola has assumed its position as a member of the United Nations Security Council. I'm confident that you will use your position on the UN Security Council to shine the spotlight on regional and continental 
these challenges that require the attention of the international community base. I look forward to further exchanging views with you, Your Excellency, with ways and means of building on the momentum we have already set in motion towards creating, as well as advancing the interests of our sub-region towards sustainable economic development, peace and peace. In conclusion, I wish to express my satisfaction that this visit has enabled us to make and will make progress on the areas that you have alluded to and identified since our country signed the General Cooperation Agreement in 2006. Part of the remarks by President of Botswana, Serete Kamayankama, is speaking at the press opportunity along his Angolan counterpart in Luanda. On the other hand, President Jose Eduardo Santos also said that the countries of the southern region integrated in SADC are building democratic and law-abiding states which periodically hold general free and fair elections and try to respect the fundamental principles that should govern democracies. President Jose Eduardo Santos also said that the trustworthiness of principles between peoples and countries in the region also facilitate dialogue, solidarity and cooperation at political and diplomatic level. He also claimed that the two countries should also combine their efforts in order to preserve the state of peace, political stability and security that the southern region currently lives, given that this is the main guarantee of conditions for development. The countries of the southern region integrated in SADC are building democratic and law-abiding states, which periodically hold general free and fair elections and try to respect the fundamental principles that should govern democracies. This identity of principles between our countries also facilitate dialogue, solidarity and cooperation at a political and diplomatic level. Mr. President, our two nations should also join efforts to preserve peace, political stability that Southern Africa region currently observes because this is the main guarantee for the development. This is why we have been engaged in seeking for peaceful means to solve conflicts in Africa, especially in Southern Africa, Central Africa and on the Great Lakes region with the goal of creating conditions that will provide for progress and the well-being of our nations and people. There was Angolan President Jose Eduardo Santos speaking in Luanda during the visit of his counterpart from Botswana, Serete Kama Yankama. At the sidelines of the official talks, a business forum also discussed here in Luanda partnerships in the areas of agriculture, geology and mines, energy and water and trade. Phil Nello, Channel Africa, Angola. The issue of equality for rural women to own and work on agricultural land was at the forefront of a debate in South Africa's National Council of Provinces. This as the International Rural Women's Day is celebrated on Thursday. The day was established by the United Nations in 2008 to recognize the important role rural women play in improving food security and eradicating poverty. Zaline Merrington reports. Rural women make up a quarter of the world's population. Across the globe, their battles are universal. They battle to have access to and own agricultural land. They also struggle for quality education and health care. Traditional leaders often prevent women from owning land and speaking in traditional courts or meetings. 
But the Deputy Minister of Rural Development and Land Reform, Kenneth Mashehut Lamini, says government is making strides in empowering women. 82 million from 1994 to June 2015 is such that there are 4.5 million hectares under the land redistribution through 5,199 projects, benefiting 235,732 beneficiaries, of which 24% of that are women. From 2009 to June 2015, there are 1.5 million hectares under land redistribution through 1,482 projects, benefiting 20,124 beneficiaries, of which 8,300, which forms 41%, are women. But a DA member, Jacques Julius, has challenged government to take decisive action to address women empowerment. Give rural women title deeds so that they can develop their own land and acquire business loans to develop their own lives and that of their children. Rural women cannot forever be dependent on grants and handouts. These handouts that you hold them ransom to for a vote. His views were echoed by Busiwana Mteleni from the EFF. The oppression of women in rural areas is only gaining ground. Most women are denied rights to own and use land. Unless they are married or have grown up male children. Most women are not even given rights to speak, uh, even in traditional courts or meetings. The traditional leadership and the Framework Act of 2003 requires that about 30% of the seats in traditional councils should be occupied by women. But up to this stage, the government has done nothing to enforce this provision. The theme for this year's International Rural Women's Day is Rural Women as Agents for Achieving Sustainable Socioeconomic Development. On Saturday, the world will commemorate International Day for the Eradication of Poverty. Zeline Merrington, Parliament. It's 8.29 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 6145 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. This is Professor Stephen Hawking. Global Goals. You with me, Plano This is Chris from Coldplay. Global Goals. I'm Cody Simpson. Global Goals. This is Lisa Astronaut, Samantha Christopheri. This is Liam Neeson. I'm the actress, Michelle Yeoh. This is Gilberto Gil. Please, could we just have one minute of your time? A minute of your time. A minute of your time. By joining together and saying these credible goals, let's be serious about them. Let's get involved. That very privileged perspective of being able to look down on our planet from space really made me think of the Global Goals for Sustainable Development. You're listening to Radio Arua. We will live in a world where our industries and our best innovations are not just used to make money, but to make all our lives better. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. European Union observers have given Guinea's presidential elections a clean bill despite protests by opposition supporters 
will accuse President Alpha Conde of rigging the vote to win a second term. UN refugee agency UNHCR says tens of thousands of people displaced by fighting in Chad are living in a war zone and the release of a report into the crash of Malaysia Airlines Flight MH17 issued by the Dutch Safety Board has been welcomed by the United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. Farmers in South Africa's summer rainfall areas can expect a drier season this year with a strong El Nino weather pattern over the Pacific Ocean. The water levels of some dams in the country's Free State Province are dangerously low, already resulting in some of the toughest water restrictions in years in the Greater Bloemfontein area. However, Grain SA remains positive for the summer grain season, with most maize and soya bean farmers in the drier areas expecting to plant during the last part of. Of December. Marina van Weg reports. With the white maize the country's staple food, a prolonged drought could mean South Africa would have to rely on expensive grain imports. Many farmers are still dealing with the financial challenges brought on by last season's lack of rain. With the new season's planting window not far away, the current lack of rain and the resultant low soil moisture levels is cause for concern. Yanni de Villiers, CEO from Grain SA, explains. It is still early days. Uh, you know, obviously we start the season with very low moisture uh, and, and, and we would prefer good rains, especially up front, uh, to, to sort of uh, trigger the farmers to start planting. But there's no crisis at the moment, but obviously we would have preferred to have early rains and, and good moisture. Lawrence Schlebusch, a farmer from the Jagersfontein area, says he has already missed out on planting. Because of the drought, we missed the planting opportunity in October. So it will move our planting window to December or January, which will have a bottleneck effect on our equipment as well as our, obviously our time. And that could only happen if we have a lot of rain in November. The Weather Bureau says some relief is on its way, but the rainfall will still be below normal. Twinira so, forecaster from Weather SA at the Bram Fischer Airport, explains. Weather prospects for the coming season, for the new f- near future, October, conditions are improving. For the second part of October, there is an increase in moisture coming in from the north, and uh, we'll see some uh, rain regularly every seven days or so. You might see some showers, but we still expect it to be under normal. The seasonal forecasts are expecting under normal rainfall till almost the end of January. That's the rain season, and it doesn't look that good for agricultural at the moment. Careful planning, therefore, I think is advisable. Jack Armour from Free State Agriculture says it's not a crisis for stock farmers yet. Our livestock farmers, the Red Meat Producers Organization and the National Wool Growers Association, they haven't reported any real major crisis situation regarding the felt condition. Yes, the felt condition is dry, and the felt is little. We have had reports from the commonages from the municipalities. There there's disastrous situations because of overgrazing, bad management. But in the commercial areas where good management practices have been followed, the felt is deteriorated, the felt is bad, it is dry, but the farmers have, have taken the necessary management steps, reduced their stocking rates, 
feeding, additional feed, whatever is necessary. But it is a dry time of the year and, and people plan for that and build up fodder reserves to take the animals through this dry period and then hope for the spring rains to start bringing relief. The Kreers Drift Dam near Bloemfontein is only 34% full and the Rustfontein Dam that supplies water for the Bloemfontein Metro is only 23% full. With tough water restrictions already in place in the greater Bloemfontein area, the Mangahung Metro warns that tougher measures may be needed. Kondile Kedama is the spokesperson for the Mangahung Metro. If a uh, push comes to shove, we'd have no option but to implement a region of water because this is depending to all of us, to all citizens of this country, of this municipality and this province. If people do not adhere to the messages that we are sending out there, we'll have no option as the city in particular but to ration water. With farmers and urban residents already feeling the effects of the drought coupled with unusually hot conditions, it will take more than isolated rain showers to ease the pressure on the province's limited water resources. I am Marijna van Wijk in Bloemfontein. A new approach to combating tuberculosis or TB has been announced by UN health experts who say the mobile phone and the internet are potential key tools in the fight against the killer disease. Under proposals by the World Health Organization and partner, the European Respiratory Society, national governments will be encouraged to use so-called digital health solutions to share life-saving information about TB with medical staff. This should make identification and treatment of the disease much quicker and more thorough and hopefully reduce the more than 1.5 million people killed by TB annually. WHO's Dr. Mario Ravilloni explains. In the care of tuberculosis, you have several challenges. And the number one, for instance, is how to detect the cases as quickly as possible because people may go on for months coughing without realizing that, in fact, they have the beginning, the start of a process of tuberculosis. So having e-learning technology that teaches nurses or teaches those who are in the help post in very rural parts of the country or in the periphery, in the slum areas, teaches them how to recognize tuberculosis, you know, that would be already useful to early detection of tuberculosis. Then the second problem is once you detect the case, you have to treat. Treatment of tuberculosis is not an issue of one week of antibiotics. It's an issue of six months, let alone if you are dealing with multidrug-resistant TB that require two years. So one of the major problems we encounter is that of the adherence to treatment. So how do you ensure that patients adhere after they start feeling well? After one month or so of medication, then you feel well. The problem is you have to take them for six months, otherwise it comes back. And so the notion of the video-observed therapy is very important. It means reminding patients, counseling them on a daily basis just via video. You don't need to... to On their mobile phone? On the mobile phone, for instance. Or there are programs now that have experimented the possibility of giving them tablets, right? So they give like little tablets which contain, of course, the video part and then uh, doing that type of, uh, of approach allows them to stay at home and be reminded on a daily basis they have to take treatment. How many people are you going to touch with this new technology? Ideally, this technology, especially uh, the ones that uh, we are now defining as really very appropriate and very useful, and this is the purpose of this agenda to sort of prioritize what are the potential tools, should be then, uh, ideally, as I say, should be then applied everywhere for every single patient. 
if you, are, if you have tuberculosis and you think that you have to take your drugs for six months and you tend to forget, then having someone that reminds you on a daily basis in a pleasant way, whether it is automatic or it is your own doctor, would be something that helps. Is a telephone really a good replacement for a doctor, though, or a nurse? Of course, never. All right, so let me just be clear about that. Never. I mean, you always want the human touch and the human contact. But here we are talking about the chronic disease, so to speak, that lasts several months. And you don't want a patient to go to a doctor on a daily basis when they have to walk perhaps three kilometers to the next uh, health post. Or sometimes, you know, they, they have to go 100 kilometers to find the doctor, to find the nurse. So it's not feasible. And that's why we are saying use this digital technology when you can. And I'm saying this is just an example, but there are other examples in surveillance now becomes public health management more than care. But, you know, example in surveillance where we have problems with people not notifying the case. Give them a tool like this, which is easy, and then the case gets notified and we understand what's going on. Are we really going to reach the most vulnerable in society, those who are in the most remote parts of the community? That will be the ideal situation. And uh, I can say, though, that if you go to any place now in very rural areas, they have mobile phones. That technology exists. It's just a matter of finding the right solutions, give them the additional help that they need to use this technology for this type of purposes, which are related to health. That was Dr. Mario Reviglioni of the World Health Organization speaking to UN Radio's Daniel Johnson. It's 8.40 Central African time. And you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, or coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Although Africa is on the path to economic development and greater integration, conflict continues to be a big obstacle. This according to Daniel Hifru Sentayehu, Senior Peace and Security Advisor at the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, IGAD. Sentayehu, who is in New York for Africa Week at the UN headquarters, took part in a media roundtable on silencing the guns in Africa, which looked at the African Union's pledge to end all wars by 2020. He explained what this means for the East Africa-focused eight-country IGAD group. The regional organization that is in the center of big conflicts and has been in that position for the last several decades. Silencing the gun by 2020 means that it is it's a welcome development. It is a target that the region itself has been grappling with and has made some achievements and strides, but it has not yet fully solved them. But from here onwards, with uh, the African Union and the United Nations taking the lead and IGAD as a regional organization on the ground implementing what has been agreed upon. It means this is, to put it uh, in short, a, a welcome development, a, a vision that we have all been aspiring for for a long time. Well, this was an interactive event between regional heads and also journalists. And as someone, I think one of the journalists pointed out, silencing the guns is not really a new initiative. Well, the, the guns have not been completely silenced. That is why we still have to have this agenda and try to meet the targets that we set for ourselves. It is important because Africa is now on the right path as far as economic development and integration is concerned. What is holding it back and what is the big obstacle is these conflicts, mainly internal conflicts. The causes for the conflicts range from structural problems to governance problems. So all this have to be 
resolved without finding a solution to conflicts. The agenda of economic development or integration cannot be realized. So we have to meet these targets in order to bring about peace, stability and economic development for the people of Africa. And as you yourself mentioned in the program, IGAD has been instrumental in the process that's now ongoing in South Sudan. Tell us about the organization's involvement there to, in getting the peace deal signed. When conflicts uh, erupted in South Sudan between the government and opposition parties, the IGAD member states took immediate action and within a matter of few weeks they uh, were able to have a cease- ceasefire agreement in place that has prevented the escalation. Even with that, I mean, the days and destruction that has gone on in South Sudan is, is enormous. So for, for the region, bringing peace and stability to South Sudan has a lot of meaning. And um, finally, sir, you just mentioned about South Sudan. And of course, we know other countries within the IGAD region, such as um, Somalia, Uganda, Kenya have all had either attacks by insurgents inside the countries or outside the countries coming in. But do you really believe it is possible that by 2020 there will be peace, that there will, guns would be silenced in Africa? You know, we have to be optimists. We, without optimism, it, we cannot uh, push forward. And having that kind of a target gives us the energy, the push that is necessary. And I, I believe it is, it is doable. The countries of the region, the leadership is committed, people are committed, civil society is working towards that, and uh, together not only is it desirable, but it is also achievable. And that was Daniel Yifru Sentayehu, Senior Peace and Security Advisor at the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, IGAD, speaking to UN Radio's Diane Penn. This is Professor Stephen Parkin. Global Goals. You with me, Pilar Mafei. Global Goals. This is Chris from Coldplay. Global Goals. I'm Cody Simpson. Global Goals. This is Lisa Astrum, Samantha Christopher. This is Liam Neeson. I'm the actress Michelle Yeoh. This is Gilberto Gil. Please, can we just have one minute of your time? A minute of your time. A minute of your time. By joining together and saying these credible goals, let's be serious about them. Let's get involved. The very privileged perspective of being able to look down on our planet from space really made me think of the Global Goals for Sustainable Development. You're listening to Radio Arua. We will live in a world where our industries and our best innovations are not just used to make money, but to make all It's 8.45 Central African time and our economics update up next with Tabiso Lehuku. Thanks, Balungile. South African Trade Union, National Union of Metal Workers South Africa, has promised to hit private and public sectors where it hurts the most when it embarks on today's march against corruption and job losses. NUMSA's Deputy General Secretary, Karl Guerta, says that they are expecting thousands of people to take place in the march in central Johannesburg. He added that they will be demanding the strengthening of anti-corruption laws and the offices of the Public Protector and the Auditor General. South Africa, from where we stand, is in a vicious grip of worsening uh, unemployment, retrenchments, deepening inequality, 
and poverty amidst the political and ideological fog of a good story to tell that continues to be punted by the African National Congress, uh, who, in our view, we think has lost its uh, revolutionary credentials uh, despite all its efforts to renew itself. South Africa's Food and Allied Workers Union has reached a wage agreement of 8.25% with the Ceres Fruit Growers Company at the Commission for Conciliation, Mediation and Arbitration. This follows a wage strike by hundreds of workers affiliated to FAWU, which dragged on for several weeks. The workers were demanding a 12.5% increase, which was later revised to 10%. During the strike, the Apple and pear processing facility, the company suffered financial damages due to incidents of arson. FAU Secretary General Katishi Masimoto says they will encourage the workers to accept the offer. Well, uh, the demands that we had when we, gone, we went on strike have not been met, but at least uh, the improvements that the company uh, had made as their final offer have uh, ensured that we got something out of this uh, strike action. South African retailer Woolworths have recalled the 12th ice cream products that were not labelled with the necessary peanut allergen warnings. A spokesperson for the retail giant, Sam Logan, says the labelling has been omitted from some of the products in error. She says Woolworths has taken a decision to remove the products to avoid potentially cutting consumers allergic to peanuts at risk. Customers who had purchased any of the recalled products are advised to check if their products lacked the required labels. The World Bank has investigated or abandoned an investigation into a corruption scandal surrounding South Africa's ruling African National Congress investment wing, Chancellor House and Japanese company Hitachi. The bank says its assessment has concluded that no World Bank funds were put at risk during the Hitachi contract for the Midupi Power Plant project. Earlier this month, the Opposition Democratic Alliance asked the bank to probe the use of a loan that it provided to power utility ESCOM for the construction of the Midupi and Kusile power plants. The world's two biggest brewers have agreed to create a company making almost a third of the world's beer after SAB Miller received an improved offer with more than $100 billion from a larger rival and Hauser Bush Invest. If it goes through, the deal would rank in the top five mergers in corporate history and be the largest takeover of a UK company. The new group would bring together AB InBev's Budweiser, Stella Atwa and Corona Brands with SAB Miller's Peroni, Grolsch and Pilsner Aquel. The US dollar trades at 13.40 in South Africa, 10.18 in Botswana, 11.87 in Zambia, 0.65 to the British pound, 8.7 to the euro. On commodities market, platinum now $92 and gold $1172 an ounce. Brand crude oil for $9.33 a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update. Thank you, Tabiso. Our sports update up next with Msibudi Makura.
Thank you, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans. South Africa's senior men's national team, Bafana Bafana, have ended their Central America tour with a one-all draw against Honduras at the Olimpico Metropolitan Stadium in the early hours of Wednesday morning. Sheikhs Mashaba's men opened the scoring just um, after seven minutes as Eric Matoho headed home Jabulani Shongwe's corner at the near post for his first international goal. The hosts managed to level matters in the 12th minute as Andino headed home from six yards out after Dumoulin Gune palmed the ball into the winger's path. Bafan Mafana last week defeated Costa Rica 1-0, also in an international friendly match. Meanwhile, after missing out on qualifying for the FIFA Women's World Cup that took place in Canada earlier this year, South Africa's senior women's team captain Janine van Veek has conceded that the team is under pressure to qualify for next year's Rio Olympic Games. She was speaking before they jetted off to Equatorial Guinea on Wednesday, where they will play their last qualification match for the Olympics on Sunday. The first leg finished goalless a week ago in South Africa, and van Veek doesn't need to be told on how tough things will be in on Sunday. There's obviously a little bit of pressure on us, um, nerves, but it's it's good nerves. Um, we have to do it for ourselves, we have to do it for our country that stood behind us, Banyana Banyana that supported us, and obviously we need to do it for the coach because I, th- I, th- I really feel that she has done so much for women's football in this country, she has done so much with the team um, till this far, so um, she really deserves something to, if she does, you know, end up um, not coaching us anymore, she needs to say, you know what, at least... Um, um, took them to the to the Rio Olympics, um, so we deserve it um, as well as a team for working so hard and having missed out on all other competitions as well. So um, we know it's going to be tough, and um, everything else follows the crowd and the conditions and so on. But we have 90 minutes of our lives to actually go there and do the job. So on football news, Fistin Abdul Razak scored a brace to guard Burundi to a 2-0 win over Seychelles in Bujumbura in the return leg of the 2018 FIFA World Cup qualifier on Tuesday evening. The Mamelodi Sundown striker opened the scoring in the 68th minute when he um, converted from the spot before adding a second strike 12 minutes later to seal victory for Burundi as they eliminated the Seychelles who failed to score over two legs. This is Burundi's fifth consecutive victory in all competitions having defeated Niger 2-0 in Bujumbura in the AFCON 2017 qualifier last month. They also defeated Djibouti home and away in the Chan 2016 first round qualifier winning 2-1 away before registering a 2-0 victory at home to set up a date with Ethiopia next weekend and the final round of qualifications. George Lewandamina has admitted that they, um, rather they were hard lessons taken from Sunday's away friendly loss against Egypt. Egypt crushed Zambia 3-0 in Abu Dhabi to see Shapolopolo remain without a win over the pharaohs of Egypt in eight meetings since 1996. Zambia lost one, um, rather they lost win over the pharaohs was back in 1996 at the Africa Cup of Nations qualifiers where they won 3-1 in the Free State Province right here in South Africa. Lawanda Mina says he has already turned his focus to Saturday's 2016 Chan home qualifier against Mozambique in Ndola and the 2018 World Cup doubleheader qualification against Sudan set for next month. And finally, in cricket news, the protests take on India in the second one-day international on Wednesday. The protests currently lead the five-match series 1-0. Natalie Germanos reports. 
After South Africa showed how to hold your nerve under pressure in the first one-day international against India, India now find themselves under real pressure going into this game. They haven't won a game on the tour as of yet, with South Africa taking the T20 series 2-0. The final one rained out, and now South Africa are 1-0 up in the series. Their captain, Mahindra Singh Dhoni, did take responsibility for what he called a botched run chase. It certainly was, because they looked well on course to win, with Robert Sharma making 150. It would have seemed that they should have taken a pretty easy but in the end, we saw South Africa getting through by five runs. But it's not all too rosy for South Africa because David Miller still hasn't shown any form of late. He's really struggled in his last few innings and he might be the one change South Africa will be considering. From India's point of view, Ravi Chandran Ashwin suffered a side strain in the first one-day international and Habajan Singh has been brought in as cover for him. The match starts at 10 o'clock South African time. For Zaya Sports News at the SAR, stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Raz and Shine at this hour, the ICC still holds South Africa liable for not handling, handing over Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir and Angola and Botswana start a new era in the bilateral cooperation on agriculture, geology and mining. And that wraps up Africa Raz and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Lebu Munamukhulu, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Judith Sapuma with Mangwani.